My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shada. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Paul Fansale is a human rights lawyer and ethical fashion entrepreneur who in 2009 founded Mayette, a luxury fashion brand with a social impact purpose. Now, if you've read Wardrobe Crisis, you will know that I tell the story of Mayette, which was really the pioneering ethical luxury leader. The idea was to incorporate ancient traditions into untraditional ways by partnering with artisans in developing economies and by sourcing material in ethical ways. It's all about creating opportunity, local entrepreneurship, prosperity and dignity in, as Paul puts it, the places that need it most. So Mayette has partnered with artisans in Colombia, India, Indonesia, Kenya and South Sudan. They showed on the Paris Fashion Week schedule and they really helped shift the conversation about ethical fashion in the luxury space. But Paul is not your obvious fashion man. He grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era and served as the executive secretary of South Africa's post-apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that was from 1995 to 1998. And we talk about that and what it was like and how it shaped him in this interview. So how fashion? Well, Paul saw a great opportunity to make positive social change through fashion. He says because fashion is a major contributor to labour rights violations and it's, uh, I'm quoting him here, an industry which may be regarded as unfair and polluting. But if you're trying to create a more just and more sustainable world, fashion is a good place to start. We recorded this interview a while back in Copenhagen, but we're running it now as I launch my new book, at the very exciting new Myatt Collective Space in London, which is all about community and bringing in different brands into this space under the luxury ethical umbrella. It's part of The Conduit, which is a new private members club that Paul has co-founded. Here's what The Evening Standard has to say about The Conduit. The requirements for membership are not based on industry or pedigree, but a throbbing social conscience. It doesn't matter what you do, so long as you want to do good. Think Soho House, the Nobel Peace Prize years. Love it. Make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter for all the news. I'm at Mrs Press. 
As always, dear listener, thank you for lending me your ears. But now let's hear from Paul. I'm very happy and excited to get to talk to you about the story of Mayette and about artisanship in person. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here. I interviewed you several years ago and readers of my book would be familiar with the story of Mayette. But for those who aren't, let's begin by that. So after years of working as a human rights lawyer, and I mean, your career was about advising countries who've been going through transition from terrible human rights abuses and system changes into how they could create a more just society, you decided you'd go into fashion. (laughs) What? I think after growing up in the anti-apartheid movement, one of the the key characteristics of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity and subjected people to terrible life conditions, deprived them of their basic rights and their basic dignity. And people were tortured and people were killed and people disappeared. And so the primary urge at that stage in my life was to get rid of an evil system and to establish a democratic system in which people could freely elect their own government. Once you do that, and once you achieve that, you're still left with the prior economic and social conditions that occurred immediately prior to the end of apartheid and the birth of a a new democratic system. And that is poverty, a lack of basic education, a lack of running water, a lack of good opportunity and a lack of housing. And so in a way, what Mayette emerged from was not just my experience in South Africa, but in advising governments from 30 countries around the world on how to deal with the legacy of human rights abuse. And once you've got rid of an abusive system, you still have to build dignity for your citizens and you still have to give them opportunity. And so Mayette was an attempt in its earliest days to be able to find people who had incredible skills, artisans, and elevate those skills, design into those skills, and then have their goods sold in essentially Western markets where people were willing and able to pay what artisans should be paid for their skills and for their goods. But why fashion? I remember originally when we talked about this, you said you did look at other industries. Food, yeah. bars. Exactly, exactly. So I think the idea Explain was... Explain bars. That was a yeah. strange thing that I just said, but were they not? Yeah, well, we looked at every category. So we looked at food, we looked at flowers. Snack bars, though, Yeah, right? it, well, one of my co-founders at Mayette was the founder of Kind Bars. And so he came from the food industry and had a real sense of what you could do in the food industry. So you're looking at possible employment and economic empowerment pathways. Precisely. Why did fashion win? I think fashion won because the idea was that you could establish a brand. And at that point in time, there weren't that many social, ethical, environmental brands. Uh, When was this? 2009, 2010. So, you know, coming up to a decade ago. Yikes. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, the idea was that if you could create a brand that had real value, that resonated with consumers that stood for something and then you created beautiful products which embodied the the kind of genius of of artisanal design you would be able to create something of of value but was it also because the fashion skill sets can be far-flung i mean i know that you have worked with artisan communities in all kinds of places from colombia to india to indonesia to kenya to south sudan yeah so yeah so part of it was 
because after my my work at the Truth Commission, I then founded a not-for-profit which worked in many other countries around the world. And once you are worked with a government or a head of state or the cabinet, and then you, the end of it, sort of wanted to try and understand the society in which you're working, and you weren't just dealing with the people who were at the top of the pyramid, you wanted to see how ordinary people lived and the circumstances in which they lived, you'd go out into the streets and I would also be simultaneously looking for something to buy my wife, who uh, was, <laughs> was inevitably, inevitably somewhat frustrated that I was always on an airplane so I could return with something that was beautiful by way of an apology for my absence. And so, you know, artisanship, you know, seemed to be a theme that there were these artisans, whether it was batik in Indonesia, whether it was handcraft horn and bone in Kenya, whether it was in embroidery in India or hand weaving, they had beautiful skills. They were just trapped in a local market and not properly elevated. What was that NGO that you had begun? It was called the International Center for Transitional Justice. And it's a bit of a mouthful. It's a great name, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) The Transitional Justice, um, yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, having done a fashion brand, I might have given a a shorter and simpler name. But Transitional Justice is is the study of how societies reckon with the legacy of massive human rights abuse. And so the center was trying to help people reckon with terrible abuse. It's such serious stuff. I mean, you're dealing with life and death stuff, torture stuff, terrible deprivation stuff. Human rights law is no walk in the park. And yet fashion is, of course, serious because it's about livelihoods, it's about economic opportunities, Mm. but it's also daft, (laughs) surface-driven, beautiful. These things are not obvious bedfellows. Or are they? Well, I think as more and more serious research is done, and you know, as you know, the kind of now well-worn statistic that the fashion industry is the second most polluting industry in the world, it also is a major contributor to labor rights violations. It's you know, it's an industry which, in aggregate, may be you know regarded as you know unfair and polluting, and so if you're trying to create a more just and a more sustainable world. Fashion's a good place to start. And I guess my general worldview, and it's probably born out of the optimism of having lived in South Africa at a time where we experienced a transition from bad to good against the odds, is that the darkest and most evil things you can imagine, like apartheid, give you know birth to Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. And if you're a polluting and an unfair industry, you can give birth to extraordinary innovation and creativity and inspiration. And, you know, if you just look at the, um, you know, the Copenhagen Fashion Summit and you look at the, just the, the sheer number of bright young things doing a whole bunch of innovative stuff, seeking to respond to the industry, that has to give you hope. Let me just come back to you there, because when we're talking about context and we're talking about the work that you did in South Africa during apartheid, tell us a little bit about how you began and how you went into the law. I was very fortunate because I grew up in a family where my parents said apartheid is evil. And I remember going to bed as a young boy, listening to my parents argue with my grandparents about apartheid. Gosh. Um, and so, you know, as you drift off to sleep, hearing your parents in you know very loud and you know vociferous terms saying this is an evil society in which you live it leaves an impression on you and so i think when i went from school to university where the first time that i you know encountered my fellow citizens and black south africans 
as equals because when you grow up in the bubble of apartheid, you don't encounter black Gosh, South Africans. Gosh, it must Africans have been ever so weird. And then you encounter these... We ex- can't imagine segregation from yeah. a different perspective. It must be very strange. It was absolutely bizarre. And and then you, you get to university and you have these exceptionally bright and gifted people who are putting their lives on the line and then two weeks into arriving at university, they all get arrested and detained without trial and whisked away under the emergency regulations and tortured and some of them are killed and then your professor gets assassinated and all of a sudden you realize uh, that, uh, you know, the bubble that you've been in is a bubble. That happened? Yeah, all of that happened. So you go very quickly from, you know, as a young boy, a sort of intellectual sense that the society is evil to 18 being a you know a young activist and seeing what it really means well you're friends yeah yeah i mean you know i think one of the the challenges of that time was there were two percents of white students at our universities were you know actively opposed to apartheid and a hundred percent of the black students were so you had the sense of an enormous both responsibility because you were one of a tiny minority and you had to not let down your your black friends and colleagues because in some ways you represented a sense of hope that the color of your skin doesn't determine your ethics and that you know that's a, a responsibility it's amazing to me to hear you say that in an educational establishment a tertiary educational establishment there was that little activism and there was that little understanding that the system was wrong i would have thought that would be the hotbed of change making and so in you know where in were fairness you? at the university of the Witwatersrand in johannesburg but in fairness we could rely on the support of a full third of the white student community but by support i mean that if we were to be voted for in the student elections they would vote for us if we held you know organized a rally you know uh, some of them would show up Mm. but to people who you know got up every day and printed the posters and did the organization and ran the the elections it's always a small group so you studied law i did and it was very clear to you that you wanted to go into human rights law yeah i mean at that point when you're 1987 and I'm apartheid South Africa being a corporate or a transactional lawyer what am I going to do doing bond indentures or you know mergers and acquisitions or intellectual property no you're going to be a human rights lawyer it's you know yeah you must have seen some grim stuff in your work on the truth commission and I mean goodness I I mean the truth commission was intended to hold up a mirror to South Africa and show South Africans black and white what really happened under apartheid. And, you know, even Desmond Tutu said when he started the, the, the endeavor as the chair of the Truth Commission, he did not fully expect and understand the true extent of the horror that we would uncover. So, you know, if the leading anti-apartheid figures of our time were horrified, you know, the country was horrified. It was one of the things about apartheid it, it was that it had a veneer of civility. You know, it sort of made a claim that it was separate but equal and that, you know, the leaders of apartheid treated people, even though they were different, with equal amounts of dignity. And, you know, in fact, they killed, they disappeared, they assassinated, they poisoned. And so, you know, to keep a system like that alive, you have to have great violence. 
Listening to you talk, I'm reminded of a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Simona Cipriani, who is also someone in my book who inspired my journey about his experiences of working in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. with the Ethical Fashion Initiative. And one of the things he said that stuck in my head was that someone there had told him, we need to remember that this could happen to any of us. And she'd said, my life and my culture was wonderful. And now look. And we had this big conversation about, you know, there but for the grace of god go i i suppose is the phrase isn't it but you know this could happen to us we need to really value the freedom and democracy that we have and we need to be mindful of the fact that things can go to shoot i in a moment you know and and i mean i guess it takes longer than a moment but you know we need different contexts take different you know if you're um, a muslim living in america and donald trump gets elected your experience of your citizenship is radically transformed suddenly you, know, you always dear, think it couldn't happen yeah dear relatives of yours can't get onto airplanes and are stuck in airports and you know the number of islamophobic attacks go up and this is in you know one of the world's great democracies so mm-hmm. things can change very quickly and you know the price of freedom is vigilance and you know the price of dignity is speaking up when these things happen not just to you but in respect of others okay let's shift gears but talk about dignity and talk about how you integrated that which is very core into the idea of forming myette right well you know so the idea was to find artisans to provide them with support and training to recruit a world-class design team produced collections designed into those skills um, you've got a skill set but you haven't got necessarily that bridge to being able to sell it precisely so you have people responsible for incredible embroidery fantastic hand weaving fantastic batiks and each of those artisanal skills are there is a lot of creativity and intervention that has to happen before you can sell it at Barney's or on Crosby Street in New York and not treat it as a sort of curio, you know, and that's it's a deceptively simple idea. There's a lot of complexity involved in, in seeking to execute it. But also it's about where do you find and elevate value? Yes. And how do you give that value back to those who made it? Yes. Rather than exploiting the value for, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. there's a long history of fashion doing that. Precisely. And I think it's also, you know, one of the things that happened, you know, along the journey of Mayette was, you know, when we started, we were in a relative minority and... You were crazy. When you told me that story, I said, well, what? Yeah. <laughs> Who does that? Exactly. Actually, though, now more people are trying to do that. Precisely. And so I think if you fast forward, you know, close to 10 years hence, well, firstly, the entire fashion industry during those 10 years has had every one of its economic rules turned on its head. The level of change and disruption. And, you know, that level of change and disruption, change and disruption is, you know, either a disaster or an opportunity. <laughs> um, and it's very important to to understand, you know, that shift. And if you just pause and take a step back for a moment, 10 years ago, the path to a brand being successful was you start up a brand, you do a small collection, you hope like hell that it gets picked up by some relatively prestigious wholesale account, 
you grow your wholesale business that happens for two or three or four years you begin to develop brand recognition you then do your own retail store and alongside that in a sort of ancillary way you do this thing called e-commerce maybe right fast forward to today anybody who starts off their business and decides that my whole aspiration is to be in wholesale is insane because you know wholesale as we know it is all but vanishing do you think you made that mistake or do you think that there was no other option because that was the context yeah you you know you go to battle to fight the war and with the equipment that you have not that you choose but that you're confronted by and so i think at that moment that was, was that's the, the you know that's but you the, did all right i mean yeah. like we talk about barney's no no i mean when our I very mean, first very collection our very first collection you know we showed on the you know on the runway in Paris and was picked up by Barney's. So but that's zero point one percent of brands that that happens to. Yeah. But Paul, you and I talked about that, and yeah. you said to me, and I'm paraphrasing. I didn't write it down yeah. here now, but yeah. you said to me, "We want to see ourselves yeah. on that eight p.m. slot, benchmarking ourselves next to the big Paris brands like Saint Laurent, right. like right. Alexander McQueen." Right. right. That was hard. You know, that's that is something that you can only do with the naivety of somebody <laughs> who doesn't know the industry, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we did it. It's interesting we, you said naivety. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. just to say it. Yeah, ask you a question. Do yeah. you think there was a level of arrogance there where you're like, I can do it without understanding that fashion can be brutal? Yeah, and fashion people are going to say, Who the hell yeah. are you? Because you're not yeah. from our world. Yeah. do you I think mean, that happened? I think that everybody has a range of you know vices and delusions but i would say that of my <laughs> vices and delusions are ar you know arrogance is not one of them I, I don't think that what we did seeking to do what we did was didn't come from a position of arrogance i think it came from a position of idealism yeah and a sense that you know if you are if you have the conviction on what you're doing you are going to do it uh, and you know entrepreneurship you is is a small step away from insanity because you wouldn't you know Nobody in their right mind would be an entrepreneur. You know, it's just, it's impossibly hard. You have to come up with a concept, do a business plan, rain capital, hire people, make products, attend to your supply chain, market it, course correct in the middle of all of that. Fashion is the most complex and fickle and difficult industry that you can work in. But you did get some excellent partners on board and some excellent investors on board at the beginning. Yeah. We we certainly got that. Um, and I think, the, you know, the most, and, and you know, the most heartening thing in the last few years has been the sense of not being alone in doing this, that there is a community of people. And, you know, we opened up a store on Crosby Street and went from being our own brand in that store to collaboration. So we did a collaboration with Warby Parker, that kind of eyewear company. And um, as we did each collaboration, so too people came to us and said, would you like to collaborate? Would you like to do something together? Would we like to do, you know, Barney's, we did a perfume with Barney's. And then people said, you have this beautiful store. Would we, could we sell a capsule of what we're doing in your store? And that evolved to 15 or 16 brands selling under the umbrella. And so, you know, what we've got to today is a collective, which has a couple of, you know, half a dozen, dozen brands together and will do much more of that. And I, I think that sense of building a community is very, very exciting. And also, let's think about the fact that traditional retail yeah. is not the same as it was. So what now is the role of the retail store? I know that's a big picture question, yeah. but actually, what is it? Maybe one of the roles, certainly one of the roles, is that it's a place of discovery. 
Correct. So I like the idea that you can curate, a horrible word actually, yeah. I hate the word curate, it's like yeah. lean in, isn't it, overused, yeah. but yeah. you can establish, curate, create a kind of gallery-like experience where you can discover stuff. I mean, that's what bricks and mortar retail has to be, because let's face it, that's not where all sales are coming from anymore. Correct. Mm. So yeah, no. so then if you then reverse out and say, what would it take to build a brand, you know, if you started it in 2018, right? Mostly you want to come up with a compelling product that satisfies a consumer demand in the right segment at the right price. I would suggest that if you don't have some social good embedded in that brand, whether it be now. ethical or sustainable or trying to have some higher purpose, you're making your life. It's not to say that you can't. You know, you could make a lot of money out of a fidget spinner, I suppose. But you are most likely going to have to to build a, a truly global brand and do something which has purpose in it. And you God, should. That's true now, isn't it? Yeah. It wasn't true before. No. And so what, you know, it's like... I love people, that. When people buy milk, you know, increasingly people are just saying, I'm not comfortable buying milk that's not organic. It's increasingly brands are going to have to show that they're doing good. And then you probably will start online for all the reasons that one does. And then you'll discover that you really should go to bricks and mortar because it's a complementary experiential complement to being online. And then you probably discover that there are a whole set of ways in which you, if your brand succeeds, you can leverage off that brand by a whole set of adjacent collaborations. Now, this is an entirely different business model an entirely different way of doing things that from something that happened a mere decade ago. So you're actually about to roll out the Myat Collective in London. Yeah. Tell us about that. So we are we have um, a five thousand square foot space in a beautiful building on Conduit Street. It's big. Yeah, it's big, and it's between New Bond and Savile Row, so it's in a kind of part it's big of and the, posh. In the, yeah, it's, a, it's in the, it's in the posh fashion district in London. Um, and what we're going to do is bring together about 50 brands and we'll pop up a couple of days a month initially and then hope to do it more and more. I think what you want to try and do is if you create a community of ethical and sustainable brands, their customers are part of a community who care about provenance and care about what a brand does. What you're trying to do is produce this community of people mm. who will come and shop for your brand, but also go somewhere else. And it's that mutuality, that sense of actually we all benefit by building that community, which is something we're trying to harness. Mm. And so I think we're trying to do the opposite of a sense of competition. We're trying to say yeah. actually that community and collaboration in brands you know, can work. Now, you still have to have a beautiful product that sells, that's consumer accepted pricing, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not undoing the basic laws of what <coughs> it takes to win. That's very interesting because that's very modern. I'm always talking about community, but actually yeah. when we look at value-driven brands and retail and this whole idea that in the next generation, starting now, that's what customers, consumers, whatever you want to call them, are looking for. They're looking for more than just some new thing in a shiny bag they're looking for a sense of belonging a sense of this is my tribe and an authentic story community if you can work out a way to actually make that work as a system gold yeah i mean i you, look we'll see mm -hmm. uh, but i'm i'm really excited by it. the pickup that we've had and the enthusiasm that we've had and the energy that is behind it i think is infectious and i think people are you know I mean, like anything, this is a stunningly obvious idea. You should, you know, 
people are looking to a place that you can go and find brands that you think are cool, but also which uh, improve the world in some way and by some theory of change. And that's a really interesting opportunity. So how then has Maya evolved as a brand? Because you you began with Kirsty Kaylor, and I know about her background, that she came from Product Red, yeah. she'd worked for Band of Outsiders. She was very integral to your early setup in terms of finding the artisans and selecting the kinds of products that you were going to work with. You then worked with a creative director, Declan Kearney, who did some beautiful products. I saw the collections. I thought they were absolutely gorgeous. He moved on in 2016. But then what? Like I read a WWD story which said that you don't want to replace him because you're looking at collective and collaborative structures where you don't have a creative director. Yeah. That's so th- what? Why? <laughs> well, I, but because I think one of the conclusions that we reached was the conventional way of doing fashion is broken. So four collections a year, runway shows, over-designing, producing stuff that's a-seasonal. You design a 100-unit you know, unit collection and you put that in front of 50 wholesalers and they pick through it and the people from Korea buy different things from the people in the Netherlands, buy different things from the people in the US and the people in Miami buy different things from the people who buy in Texas. And you've got to assort each of those items and come up with minimum skew counts in order for it to be viable. And then you've got to produce stuff in a certain season and sell it out into another season and it doesn't correspond with the weather. It's an ins- If you <laughs> would think about it, if you were to design a system that produced goods in a way that was designed to be completely dysfunctional, you would invent what is the traditional four seasonal way of doing stuff, oh, right? God. And that has, it's, you know, it's not just my it, it's, Dozens and dozens and dozens of brands have all responded, have dropped seasons, are delivering stuff straight from the runway now into two customers. So all of that's being rewritten. But that in still doesn't explain why you wouldn't want someone steering the creative aesthetic. Oh yeah, no, we have no, we have that. So I think what we've done is instead of producing four seasonal collections, what we've begun to do is discover the DNA of the products that our customers really want. And understand that in the context of what the community of brands that you assemble are. Let me take a step back. If you produce a community of brands and a whole cross-section of customers come into your store and shop, you begin to get really interesting market intelligence for what it is that ethical and sustainable consumers want to buy. And once you begin to get a sense of that, you can also begin to deduce What's the Venn diagram from the universe of what ethical and sustainable consumers want to buy for what we're good at and what we want to make? And then what you can do is instead of doing a kind of completely random throw darts at a dartboard approach to designing collections, which I think, frankly, lots of you know people do. That is exactly what we do. You begin to start doing it in a more informed way. You say that a particular kind of jewelry at a particular price point and a particular kind of necklace and a particular kind of of ring really resonates. A particular kind of V-neck tank really resonates. A particular kind of trench really resonates. And then what you can begin to do in a way that's less wasteful and makes more economic sense is design into with greater immediacy and with not the, the intermediation of wholesalers uh, what it is your customers want. So who's designing it? So we have a team. We have a. What we've done is we have defined a store manager role to be a chief merchant role, 
And that role is the design role. So are you still producing volume of product with artisans? Or are you... Yes. So have you scaled that back considerably? Yeah. Or? Well, so what we've done is we've we've targeted verticals that we really believe in, and we're going deeper rather than going broader. Okay. So where are you producing now? So we've got a bunch of cashmere, which has been you know we've collected a whole bunch of cashmere, which has been a really interesting project. We we've um we've bought twenty tons of cashmere. And that cashmere has been, we did a, a big program with a set of nomadic villages. Right. We've had that cashmere done in a way that is both produced and spun in a mill that we've had certified cradle to cradle. Um, really? We did a cool. program with nomadic villages and herders with animal husbandry to kind of think about both the health of their um, flocks, but also to think about a little bit around grasslands management because cashmere is oh. is complicated in that regard. The story of that. Yeah. We'll also, share some links in the show yeah, notes to yeah. the story of cheaply produced cashmere and how yeah. it is causing extreme environmental degradation in Mongolian yeah. grasslands. Yeah. And also what the alternatives are. Yeah. So that's so then you you have that material and and it's turned out to be one of our best sellers. So we've really, you know, chased into that. Okay, so Maya began as a luxury brand working with global artisans and competing on the Paris stage with other luxury brands in that kind of market sector. How would you describe it now? It's evolved and it's changed, but what would you describe it now in terms of its goals and its reason for being? Its goals and reasons for being remain exactly the same from you know day one. We are now collecting together a community of brands who are fellow travellers giving them a platform that they otherwise wouldn't have and in a more focused way producing our own goods. I think in aggregate we will probably do as much or greater good because one of the kind of structural challenges is, is if you're a new startup or a relatively new brand in the ethical space, you started online, as I said earlier, you probably are trying to find a way of having bricks and mortar, but you can't afford the build-outs the security deposit, the long-term lease, you don't have the capital to be able to do so, but you're looking for an opportunity to expose your products to people in the real world, for people to be able to come up and touch and feel, to be able to tell your story. So what the collective does is it offers you an opportunity to come in to, to observe with your own eyes how real customers in the real world, not in the online world, engage with your product and to tell your story. Ten years after you decided fashion could be a great way of changing the world, what have you learnt and what do you feel now about the possibility, not just for Maya, but for fashion and for this space to be an empowering one? I think that um, in some ways I'm much more optimistic than I was because I think that you know human beings are, on the one hand, wildly creative and wildly innovative and extraordinarily entrepreneurial. Human beings also have a real problem with time. You know, we, we tend to only do the right thing when we ex have exhausted all other alternatives oh, and when no. it's just a second, <laughs> a second away from being too late. Yeah. And I think, you know, we are just in that in mode. We are in the mode where, you know, on climate, we are a second away from it being too late. And so you're seeing, on the one hand, what causes you to be optimistic is how much innovation is happening and what causes you to be alarmed is that we're not addressing it as quickly as we should be. I would also say 
that innovation was not as large a feature in the fashion industry 10 years ago as it is now. And I think if there is going to something be something that is a, you know, that metaphorical silver bullet, it's going to be innovation. It's going to be, and we've just seen it at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. You've seen people who have found a way of pre-treating cotton flock before it is even spun, which, which I makes met it, this team, yeah. and excitingly for me, anyway, one of the guys that I met from that brand is actually a Tasmanian who used to advise Penny Wong when she was environment minister and is a big environmentalist who's actually doing incredible things. And, yeah, I just happened upon them. Well, there were I'll, loads of people to happen upon, weren't there, who were doing extraordinary things. Well, I'll tell you something even wackier. That precise person worked with David me, McCann, his name is. David McCann. Oh, you know him. <laughs> worked with me 10 years ago in East Timor on a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which we set up in East Timor to deal with the atrocities that happened in East Timor in 1999. Wow. And so, you know, we encountered each other and looked at each other and said, here are two people who worked on human rights issues now, you know, both working on, on fashion issues. Very interesting. God, it's a small world, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it also just shows the power of fashion because you've got two examples of people who've done extraordinary high-end work in human yeah. rights world who are thinking, actually, this is a pathway to making some goodness out of some rubbish. Exactly. <laughs> Good on you. Thank you, Paul. Great pleasure. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.